It's 20 to 8, and uh, it's a real delight to have her back, although the conversation is not necessarily so delightful. Professor Helen Rees, Chair of the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority, member of the World Health Organization International Health Regulations Committee and COVID-19, medical researcher and founder, and executive director of the WITS Reproductive Health and HIV Institute at the University of WITS. Prof. Helen Rees, welcome back. Thank you very much for having me. I'm not sure that we want to be welcoming you back, but uh, there we go. At least we have you to explain things for us. What is going on? What is this new COVID virus deviation that we're seeing? So what's been identified by a network of laboratories uh, who do what's called genomic surveillance around the country is a new variant of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So it's not a brand new virus, but it's a variant of that. And it's been identified in about 200 samples from over 50 different facilities in Eastern Cape, Western Cape and KwaZulu-Natal. So it's spread already quite widely. Um, and we think that it probably originated from Nelson Mandela Bay. Um, but it does seem to be spreading quite fast, and it's now the dominant variant in terms of the samples that have been looked at. So, so Prof, what does this actually mean? First of all, what does it mean, the fact that we're getting a new variant in South Africa? Is this something that has happened anywhere else in the world? And secondly, what does it mean for the country? Well, what it means when you get, I mean, viruses and this virus is no different. Uh, they, they, they mutate all the time. Um, SARS-CoV-2 in South Africa in the first wave was fairly stable, but this is a different sort of mutation because it's got multiple mutations. And probably everyone's heard us talk about the spike protein, the yes. spikes on the, on the COVID virus that we see, and that's what attaches to cells. And this variant has got multiple changes in that spike protein. So the concern is, will this change the way that this uh, variant behaves? Uh, will it make it uh, <clears throat> more um, transmissible, easier to transmit from one person to another? Will it change the course of the disease? And, of course, the worry would be that it would make it more severe. It could be, however, that it makes it less severe. But we really don't know this at the moment. So, so th that's what's happened, and that's what we are, uh, are, are now. We've got lots of questions. Um, but uh, it, it's still SARS-CoV-2, yeah. and it still means that we have to do exactly the same things that we're telling people to do. Nothing has changed in that regard, and it hasn't changed the way we're going to manage patients in hospitals. So nothing has changed at the moment in that regard, but we're obviously trying to investigate this further so that we understand more about what this um, mutation, what these multiple mutations will mean. So is it because of this multiple mutation or this variant that we have seen such a rapid second spike? Well, that's one that's that that we think that this could be definitely contributing to that rapid, as you say, rapid second spike. It's that, that this second wave seems to be um, going up much more quickly than the first wave. Um, and we do think that probably this variant has contributed to is contributing to that. Um, and you asked this previous question, has a similar variant been seen elsewhere? Well, not exactly the same, because when viruses mutate in different parts of the world, they'll do it differently. But hmm. 
uh, a common part of the mutation that's seen in South Africa has also been seen in a virus that's been identified in London. Um, And they've also seen this this steep uh, spike in numbers. So, um, you know, so so I think we, we are seeing something that suggests to us that this particular change might increase uh, the speed of, of transmission. Yes, like, I mean, it's almost like this virus has a brain. <clears throat> well, <laughs> it doesn't. <laughs> but uh, but um, viruses, you know, viruses are quite clever in that they they will change to to survive. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if a virus is, it kills every person that it infects, it's not going to survive very long because it's just going to wither out and, 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 and go. But if many people, as with the SARS-CoV-2, the COVID virus, are asymptomatic or they have mild symptoms and they get better, then this is a, this is a very clever virus because it means that it can, can continue to spread. It's not going to wipe out the population, but it can continue to find people who are susceptible and it can continue to spread. So viruses will change to allow them to survive as a virus. Um, and <clears throat> that's what we're seeing here. Prof, uh, one of the things, obviously, that everybody is asking is, does this new variant, is this new variant um, more dangerous? Does it, because if if it's more speedy in its infection, are we seeing more deaths as well? Well, at the moment, uh, we're looking, obviously, the clinicians around the country are looking now very hard at whether we're seeing any change in patterns of disease. And is this new variant uh, increasing the severity of disease and increasing deaths? We don't have that information, but there is, at the moment, there isn't any suggestion of that. It seems to be behaving the same way as the the, the previous um, viruses that were circulating. But clearly, we are going to look at that. The problem will be that if this uh, mutation makes this virus more transmissible, it means that more people will become infected. So even if it doesn't change the severity of the disease, it means that if you have higher numbers of people infected, there will be more people requiring hospital beds. And with larger numbers of people infected, you will get more deaths. But that doesn't necessarily equate to changing the severity of the disease. That's something we still have to establish. It does then, of course, uh, beg the question is, will the vaccines that have been created be able to deal with this new variant? It's it's a very good question. Now, we've got um, over 200 vaccines now in development and 13 of them are now in these advanced clinical trials. Many of the vaccines that have been created, including many of the most advanced ones, are targeting the area of the, the virus where we are seeing these changes. So, so that is a concern. But at the moment, I think, uh, you know, I've been talking overnight to colleagues in, in WHO and other vaccine colleagues. At the moment, we, we think that, that that is unlikely, but clearly there are now going to be um, tests done on the people who've received the vaccine so far to see whether their immune responses will be able to respond to this, this, this new variant. Um, but we think it, at the moment the feeling from experts is that it's unlikely, but we do need much more data to be able to establish that. The other thing just to say is that there are other vaccines in development that are targeting different parts of the, of the virus. So in the event that this happens, 
there are other options in terms of vaccine um, makeup that mm. will be able to address this, but that's further up the pipeline. Prof, um, talk to us about the vaccine, about the vaccine coming to South Africa. So, you know, there's all these rumours around COVAX and have we paid for COVAX? Haven't we paid for COVAX? What, what, where are we at with all of this? Yes. Well, some of you might have uh, watched the Minister of Health uh, yesterday on the yes. television when he was announcing this. Um, so certainly we've signed a contract with COVAX. The, 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 the delay was really some of the paperwork going backwards and forwards. Obviously, when you're signing large amounts of money and contracts, Treasury has to be involved. There are all sorts of rules. And so there have, had to be a dialogue to and fro between um, our Treasury and Department of Health and the, the COVAX facility in Geneva. But we are now, um, I think that it's almost finalized, if not completely finalized. And the anticipation is that we will start to get vaccines through the COVAX facility in the second quarter of next year. Um, but in addition to that, the Department of Health is talking to um, vaccine manufacturers um, to, to see whether there are any opportunities for an appropriate vaccine to be purchased um, in addition to the vaccines we'll get through the COVAX facility. We do have to go to a break, but I suppose the question I'd like to ask you is, what is an appropriate vaccine? So when we come back from the break, Prof, uh, perhaps you could just answer that one. Sure. At SAFM Radio and at Mish Constant on SAFM. We're chatting to Prof Helen Reese. It's always wonderful to have you on the line, Prof. Uh, you certainly do manage to explain things in layman's terms, which is what all of us need in a time like this. Prof, we were talking about appropriate vaccines. What is an appropriate vaccine? Well, um, an appropriate vaccine, if we start right at the beginning, the most important thing is that it's both safe and effective and that it's of a good quality in terms of manufacturing and a consistent quality. But safe and effective are the most important things. And we've seen already the results in terms of effectiveness from the, the first three vaccines, three of the first vaccines. Um, so the Pfizer and Moderna, the ones that uh, people will have heard of, these what are called messenger RNA, mRNA vaccines, are about 95% effective. The AstraZeneca is less effective, 62 to 70% but has other um, considerations that also make that a, a very interesting vaccine to consider. So the second thing you need to think about is storage. Yes, because exactly. um, the Pfizer vaccine is a challenge. It has to be stored at a minus 70. And we've only got three facilities in the public sector around the country that could possibly do this. And they're not very big. So if we wanted a population-wide distribution, that wouldn't work. The third thing would be how many doses. So most of the uh, leading vaccines in advanced stage of development are two doses. Um, it, uh, it can be 21 days apart, 28 days apart, different intervals in between, but most of them are two doses. And administering two doses, and to begin with, they're going to be doing this for adult populations where we've never really had a national rollout for adults before. Mm. That's going to be very challenging. So ideally, we would want to have, and they'll be coming through the pipeline soon, a vaccine with one dose. But for the moment, they, two doses is, is, is what uh, the, the, some of the vaccines, many of the vaccines are are using. And then the other thing we, we would ideally want is a vaccine that would work for the whole population. 
Um, as people get older, as well as everything else aging a bit, so does your immune system. So some vaccines don't work as well in older people as in younger people. Some vaccines won't work as well in people, for example, who are immunocompromised with something like HIV mm. as for somebody who doesn't have, um, who has a, a robust immune system. So ideally what you would want is a vaccine that would work well across all of those populations. And some of the vaccines we're seeing coming through, that is the case. And of course, the, 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 the other big issue here is, is going to be price. Because yeah. we are going to, as a country, have to fund our own vaccines. And as we know, we're under enormous economic stress as a country. So that budget is limited. So we're going to want to get uh, both a safe and effective vaccine that works for our population, but at an affordable price. Because even if it's a first-class vaccine, if it's too expensive, then we're only going to be able to buy uh, vaccines for a, a limited uh, percentage of our population. So all of those considerations are going to be extremely important when we decide which vaccines to go for. I, I heard something about Prof Karim saying that herd immunity is not something we should be engaging in. Well, I think what what, what uh, public health experts are saying, there have been, if you like, experiments um, around the world with herd immunity, although it wasn't actually explicitly said, but in, in countries, for example, Sweden. like Sweden. didn't work. It didn't, it didn't work. I mean, it worked. It looked like it was working to begin with. Very few constraints, no masks, etc. But now they've got their numbers are shooting up. And what the idea was that if you let this infection go through the population while trying to uh, protect the most vulnerable uh, people in your population, people with comorbidities, the elderly and so on. But if you let it go through the young people where mm, the vast majority would might be asymptomatic, might have symptoms, but will get better. Then you build up antibodies in the general population, and uh, and and that will um, protect. That will sort of build up this herd immunity. And we think that between 60 to 70 percent of the population will need to have antibodies, either through natural infection or from a vaccine, so that we can stop transmission. We can interrupt transmission of this virus. You know, Prof, um, you mentioned young people. Um, I must say I do have a certain amount of, excuse the pun, rage inside me uh, with regards to parents who would have allowed their kids to go down to those rage events. And then whether they are infected is something. But then those kids then go on to become super spreaders to people who are really in the line of fire. Well, I think I think just um, it, it, it's absolutely right. They are super spreaders, and that's exactly what we saw with that rage um, from Kazula Natal. Mm. Many of these young people came back into into Joburg, but in addition, they um, some of them gave false addresses. Some refused to to be tested. You know, we haven't got the message out properly for young people. But I think now that we're seeing these numbers, and this is one of the worries, if this. Uh, variant that we're now seeing is going to uh, in increase the speed with which our populations get infected, then young people will just have many more infections. And some of those young people will become very sick. And anecdotally, the, the colleagues in, in, in hospitals are saying they are seeing young people very sick in hospitals who didn't have any comorbidities. So for young people on two counts, they must think about this. They can think about themselves 
because they're all assuming that they're going to be fine, asymptomatic, get bounced back. Not the case. We're seeing a lot of young people with this long COVID, so with lots and lots of symptoms that, that just continue. And in addition, some young people will become severely ill. Small, small, small numbers compared to older people, but it, it happens. And as you say, what they will do is to allow this virus to then circulate into the most vulnerable um, groups in our population. I mean, parents who allow that should be really, I think they should be doing community service, actually. <laughs> it's like, you know, you're part of a, you are part of society. And it really concerns me that people don't understand what that social compact of being part of society is. Well, no, I, I, I agree. But I, I think that one of the things, I mean, as you know, there's a ministerial advisory committee um, that's looking at everything to do with COVID. And there's also a ministerial advisory committee that's looking at behavior and behavior change. And I think yes. one of the things that all of us are recognizing, experts from across the disciplines, is that we need to do a much better job at communication. Yeah. The kind of communication that's very scientific is great for some parts of the population. But if you're a young person, you're going to respond much more to social media. You're going to respond mm. more to influencers who are, you know, um, very active on Twitter, who are part of your peer group that yeah. you relate to. So I think we could do much, much more. And that is the general feeling that we need to have a much more creative and segmented communication strategy so that we actually get messages out in a way that's acceptable to different groups of our population. And remember, if we're going to also want to immunize further down the line, people who are over 65, for example, as a priority group, we're going to have to think, how do you access, how do you get that message across to somebody who perhaps in their lives doesn't recall ever being immunized? Yeah. Different group again. Yeah. In closing, and we really have little time, uh, Prof, we have a question here. Is someone saying, could I procure my own vaccine? And I suppose the question is, yes, government will be out there uh, ensuring people get the vaccine. But would people in their individual capacity be able to get a va be vaccinated? Well, this is going to be um, particularly true for people, for example, on medical aids. Because of the financial constraints, I think that, that uh, the Department of Health and the Minister is, is in discussion with the private sector as well, because I think we're going to need to have um, all facets of society. We're going to need to find funds from wherever we can to get the vaccine. So although that hasn't been finalized, I think that it's, it's, it's likely that we would be looking to the private sector to, to also um, purchase vaccines, but it would have to come through government. And what we would want to be very careful about in that case is that we don't have a two-tiered system, that those of us who are fortunate to, to be able to afford it get a vaccine, and that you know, years or months later, uh, people who are, are not able to afford to purchase a vaccine mm. come very much a, a poor second. That would not be an acceptable situation. Prof. Helen Rees, as always, you are a wealth of information and you know how to turn it into language that we understand. Thank you so much for your time.